What a great day. I love baptism Sundays. So much fun. I want to talk today about a situation I sometimes find myself in when I read the Bible. And I have a feeling that many of you probably feel this way sometimes too. Sometimes as I'm reading through the Bible, whatever I'm reading for that day, I'm just happily reading along, and then I read a verse or a passage that just hits me. I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? Or maybe it's, I'm confused, and what in the world could that mean? Or maybe uh, that complicates things a little bit, or that doesn't seem to quite jive with what I believe. You feel that way sometimes as you read the scripture? You sometimes maybe even wish that certain passages weren't in the Bible? Yeah? <laughs> Maybe because they're just so confusing or perplexing, or maybe they make us feel uncomfortable or even guilty. Maybe because we see in them something that is so opposite our culture today. Or maybe because we like to, we just like seeing people get along, and we know this is so controversial and it just divides people. Or maybe we want to always be right, and that passage would seem to say that we're wrong. For whatever reason, it's pretty natural to feel this way sometimes as we read the scripture. That maybe even thinking that we wish certain passages weren't written. Well, I used to feel that way about the passages we're going to look at today. You may still feel this way if you know what passages we're going to be looking at. We may see it as confusing as to how it fits in the Bible as a whole. Or at the least, we would say it's pretty controversial in its contents. I hope that by the end of the day, that we will feel much less confused about this passage. And that we would also find it less confusing and less controversial. But I also hope that as we look in this passage, that we will see some great truths from God's Word to apply into our lives. Because this is more than just a, some words written by a random first century pastor. We believe this is the actual Word of God to us. And so it's, we have to take this seriously. If you have your Bibles or your pew Bibles in front of you, please turn with me to the book of James. This is the New Testament book we've been going through lately. We'll be starting partway through chapter 2 today. In your pew Bibles, it's page 1012. So we'll be beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. As we approach this passage, I know I need God's help to preach this and explain it to you. And I believe you'll need God's wisdom to understand and to apply this into your life. So would you please pray with me and ask His Spirit to work in our lives? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we know that we are finite creatures with finite minds. We can't understand everything, but I pray that as we look into your word today that you would help us to understand. You would help us to see that you would open our eyes and, and behold your majesty in these pages. That you would be convicting us and growing us, teaching us, all through your Holy Spirit's power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I just said, this passage has its fair share of controversy. It's definitely the most controversial in the book of James, and many would consider it one of the most controversial in the whole Bible. These verses that we're going to be reading today have actually led some theologians to believe the book of James doesn't belong in the Bible. The famous reformer Martin Luther 
was famously bothered by this passage. He ended up keeping it in the Bible, but he was bothered. But there are still very good reasons to believe James belongs in Scripture. And I'll say this, we cannot pick and choose which parts of the Bible to believe. We have to let Scripture shape our theology instead of our theology shaping Scripture. And this is just as much God's Word as any other part of Scripture. As we read this today, you will likely have a number of different questions pop into your head. And I will do my best to answer your questions as they come up. I can't blame you for having them because I've had many questions myself about this. But I don't want you to just look to have your questions answered today. Okay? I want you to look at what God might be saying to you through these words. I'll tell you the main point in a minute. But I want you to really ponder whether this passage should inspire anything in particular in your life and in your heart. Some of you, I know, love discussing theology and you're chomping at the bit for a sermon like this. Others of you may find this quite a bit deeper than a normal sermon. It may even seem a bit like a lecture to you. But whatever the case, I want you to try your best to follow along. I'll try to do my best to not lose you along the way. But pay attention because this is a really important concept for us to understand. Much like last Sunday, James's main point is very easy to identify. He refers to it in the first verse we'll read, and then he repeats it several times. And over the next 13 verses, James really tries to prove his case to those who are skeptical. And his argument may be shocking to you if you've never read this passage before, especially if you've been in the church for a while. What's his main point? Ready? Here it is. Faith that is not accompanied by action is completely useless. That's his main point. Faith that is not accompanied by good works or good deeds is a worthless faith. It's useless. Really, it's not even faith at all. Let's begin reading in verse 14. James chapter 2, 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I'm going to stop there. But you see the main point in verse 17? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we're going to see this repeated several more times today. As we've seen the last few weeks, as we've looked into James... James loves to use rhetorical questions to make his point. Rhetorical questions, if you don't know, they're just questions that are not meant to be answered. Okay? Because the answer is implied in the question. I'm going to go two straight weeks using an illustration from The Sound of Music. But a good example of rhetorical questions is the song, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? Okay? So if you don't can't understand rhetorical questions, that's a rhetorical question. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? Well, the answer is implied. You don't need to answer that. You can't. It's impossible. You can't solve that problem. And here, James uses a number of rhetorical questions in a row to make his point. Did you see that in verse 14? It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The implied answer would, of course, be, it's no good. Can that faith save him? No. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and whipped filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Implied answer, it's not any good. As we begin to talk about faith and works here in detail, I want to start by defining these things, because we may be confused about these concepts. First of all, let's look at faith. The Greek word that James uses for faith is a very common word in Scripture. It means a state of certainty with regard to belief, or to believe with complete trust. Okay, That's what he means by faith. Faith is a crucial concept for Christians, because very biblically, if we do not have faith, we are not actually Christians. We are not saved. To be saved from our sins, we must believe and trust in Jesus, to have faith in him. And to be clear, James never questions the fact that faith is needed for salvation. Okay? He never questions that. It's assumed in this passage that faith is a prerequisite to be saved. Second, let's look at works. Let's define it. This term is very critical to James's argument here. It's a plural form of a common Greek word, ergon. And it very simply means work, action, or accomplishment. So, to do things. To work on things. In the New Testament, it specifically refers to moral, ethical, or religious behavior. And James uses it in a general way here to refer to actions done in obedience to God. That's what he means by works. Now, one thing that I think leads to confusion is we, especially in the evangelical church, consider good works is we don't really understand what they are. I think we have this vague notion in our minds of what good works are. Maybe helping old ladies across the street or serving soup in homeless shelters. We have those pictures in our mind. And we, and we don't sit still long enough to really brainstorm what are good works. What are good works that we do? If you're in a small group, you'll actually be digging deeper into this this week. But here's a bit of brainstorming for you in advance. Good works, I've done it for you. Good works that display our faith would include... Giving of yourself generously. That's one way we can do a good work. Giving of yourself. Maybe money, food, clothing, other necessities to people in need. Caring for the poor. Caring for widows, orphans, or the equivalent. That would fit very, very well in this context of James, if you've been going along with us. Visiting and loving on the lonely and helpless and hurting, abandoned. Serving in any way in the local church. Putting your spiritual gifts into practice to love others. That would be good works. Ministering to people through prayer or teaching or mentoring. Encouraging one another in our faith. Making peace between disputing people would be one way. Obeying really any of the commands of Jesus or the apostles found in Scripture. Spreading the gospel through evangelism or discipleship. And there would be many, many more that you could think of if we actually sat down and thought about this. What are good works that we do in our life? This is key, though. Let me ask, what is the heart of every single one of these good works? What's the heart? It's love. It's love. And that makes sense if we remember what James talked about last week, about loving our neighbor as yourself, as fulfilling the word of God. Love is the heart. Now, when we think about this passage in James, we tend to think about it as faith versus works. 
right? That's the way we think about this passage. As if faith and works stand in opposition to each other. I'm going to tell you, that is not what James is talking about. Okay? Surprised? That's not what he's talking about. There are two things that stand in opposition to each other, but it's not faith and works. It's actually one type of faith versus another type of faith. That's what stands in opposition here. It's not faith versus works. It's really fake faith versus true faith. If you read with, in verse 14, it says, What good is my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Or another or version says, Can such faith save him? Speaking of a specific type. This is crucial to keep in mind as we keep going through this passage, okay? So verse 14 We just saw James introduces the idea that faith without works cannot save someone. Then he immediately tells a hypothetical story to to illustrate his point. We also see a continuation of James' emphasis on caring for the poor. Can you see that, verse 15? It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body... What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. By poorly clothed and daily food, this would just speak to very basic necessities for humans. I want you to imagine with me for a minute. Okay, Imagine that one of your friends comes up to you. Okay, Not just some random person. One of your close friends that you trust, that you love as a friend. Okay, They come up to you and they tell you this. Well, I haven't told anyone this. But several months ago, I lost my job. And over this time, like, I've been looking for a new job. I've been trying to find a new job, but our savings only lasted so long. And the money quickly ran out. For the last week, we've really struggled to put food on the table. I don't, we don't have the money to go out to the grocery store anymore and buy some food. To top it off, I haven't been able to pay our hydro bills the last few months. So a couple nights ago, they shut off our heat. And we try to keep the doors closed, but it's getting awfully cold in our house. What would you do? I would hope, and I I think we would, I would hope that we would all say, let's jump in the car, let's go to the grocery store, I'll help get you some food, and then we'll go to the bank on the way to your place, and we'll get the money needed to get your heat back up. Right? That, that's what would make sense. Even if it wasn't that close of a friend and they came up to you and said that, I would hope that we would do something. Now imagine if that person came up to you, told you this story, and this is what you said. Wow. I am so sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. I'll pray that you get that money you need to get here. I'll pray that somehow you'll get that food. I feel so bad that this happened. God bless you. See how crazy that is? That would be beyond selfish. It would be inconsiderate, uncompassionate, unloving. And it would do nothing to meet that person's need. James says that 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 just as much as your words of comfort in that situation are worthless, that's how much faith without works is worthless. It's useless. 
But he's even harsher than saying it's worthless. He kind of, he calls that kind of faith dead. You see that in verse 17? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Think of it this way. Say the power goes out at your house and you have to scramble around your house at night to find some flashlights. And you finally find a flashlight and I think we all have have felt the feeling of turning on a flashlight, the light blazes to life, and immediately within three seconds it ebbs away. Isn't that so depressing? <laughs> now you have to find batteries too, and, but until you find new batteries to bring new life to that flashlight, it's worthless to you. It doesn't help you at all. And if you think of our faith, kind of like that flashlight, some of us are trying to use flashlights with batteries that are completely dead. It's useless. A dead flashlight won't help you, and neither will a dead faith. In verse 18, where we haven't got to yet, James introduces an imaginary debate opponent. He knows that some people are going to oppose what he's teaching. So he says, but someone will say, imagining this objection, right now, that person may be you. You may be hearing what James says, but but, 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 wait, what? What's going on here? What's the main objection people have? He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, or the other way around. Basically, the argument that faith and works can be legitimately separated. Okay? And in order to answer this, James, this is a challenge to anyone making this objection. If I had to sum it up, it would just be, prove it. Okay? This is what he says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Like, go ahead, try to prove you're a Christian without doing works. You can't. It's impossible. Don't just talk about your faith. Show it to me. In order to show our faith, it requires us doing good deeds. That's how our faith is displayed to those around us. If you and I were standing at the base of a basketball hoop, and you told me, I could dunk on that hoop, first words out of my mouth would be, prove it. Prove that you can do that. And you, the burden of proof would be on you to go find a basketball and prove that you could dunk on that hoop, like you say you could. It would be to, the challenge would be to prove that your words meant something. And that's what James is doing here. He says to prove that our words mean it, that they mean something. When we claim to be a Christian or that we believe in God or in the gospel, prove it. Prove that you do. Verse 19 since you believe that God is one, you do well. Belief is the right first step. It's a good thing. But it's got to move beyond that. James refers to the belief in God as one, the unity and oneness of God. This is referred to, to refer back to what is known as the Jewish Shema. Back in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, where you'll recognize this, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was the absolute most basic belief for the Jewish people. The foundation upon which all other beliefs and laws were built. Okay, And remember that James here is writing to primarily Jewish Christians. And James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The NIV says, you believe that there's one God. Good. It's a good thing. So what's the problem with this? The problem is when it, when it stays at the level of belief, and not action. C.L. Mitten says that it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but
But it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. The thing about believing in God is really belief alone isn't that impressive. The three major monotheistic religions, the the religions that believe that God is one, on earth, they account for over half the world's population. The percentage of atheists, agnostics, or non-religious in the world is usually about 15%. Not that many. But James is even harsher than saying, tons of people in our world believe in God. Look what he says. He says but some, or in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons. <laughs> Satanic angels whose only aims are evil all the time. They Even they believe that God is one. They may have seen him with their own eyes. They believe in the basics of the faith. You know what else they believe? They believe that Christ died to save sinners. That he rose from the dead. They believe that there's supernatural power in Christ's blood. That's why they would shudder here. A word meaning that they fear God's power. So what differentiates true faith from faith of demons? What differentiates that? The acting upon it. James continues his harsh treatment of fake faith, saying we're foolish if we hold to it. And if if it's demonic, then it makes sense why he's so harsh with this. In verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? So instead of saying that faith is dead here, he says that it's useless. On one level, this is just a synonym that contains the same meaning. But in Greek, James is actually doing a clever word play that doesn't always translate well. The word for works here is erga, and the word for, the word for useless is argus. It's really a pun he does. And an English equivalent would be something like this, that faith that does not work, does not work. That's basically what he's saying. Pretty creative on James's part. But do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith that doesn't work, doesn't work? You want to be shown? Verse 20 and 21, here's his evidence on his side. He points out two historical people from the Old Testament. First, Abraham, who we'll read about now, and Rahab, who we'll get to later. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. If you don't know the story of Abraham, Abraham was a faithful follower of God long ago. And one night, God came to him and said that his descendants would become a great nation, that it would number like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Well, there was one problem with that, and it was a biggie. Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have a single kid let alone many descendants. And he and his wife were both old, way past normal childbearing years. It was impossible from a human standpoint. And despite this semi-major obstacle, Abraham had faith in God keeping his promise. 
Genesis 15, 6, which James is going to quote here, says that Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Fast forward to some years later, and we find that God had kept his promise to Abraham. He had given him a legitimate heir in his old age, his son Isaac, miraculously. But when Isaac was a boy, God came to Abraham again and asked something of him. That's just unbelievable. He asked Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering to him. For those of us who know the story, we know that Isaac doesn't end up getting hurt and that God never actually intended that Isaac would be harmed. But this was a test. And what was it a test of? Abraham's faith. It was a test of his faith. Abraham had to have wondered, how could God keep his promise to let my descendants become a great nation if he has me kill my only descendant right now? How's that going to work? Remarkably, we know that Abraham obeyed God in spite of the seemingly painful and tragic request. We read later in Scripture that he actually believed God's power would raise Isaac from the dead after that. But right at the last minute, as he's about to kill his son, God's angel intervenes, and Isaac is spared. Do you remember what the angel told Abraham at that time? He said this, Now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. His obedience in this crazy task was proof of his faith. It proved his faith. And that's what James is talking about here when he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It says that his faith was active, working together with his works. And that's why, this is key, that's why God granted him salvation and call them his friend. You notice what came first? His faith. And then his works vindicated his faith as genuine. James still says here that God had to count him or credit him as righteousness, or as righteous, as Genesis 15, 6 says. Just because Abraham proved his faith by works doesn't mean that his salvation was based upon his own righteousness. Get that? Just because Abraham proved his faith by works doesn't mean his salvation was based upon his righteousness. It was still based upon God's grace, and the works were evidence of God's grace in his life. That's one thing to be clear on. Good works don't save us because they make us good. They can't. Good works prove that we trust God's goodness to save us. Now, verse 24 is where things get really interesting theologically. Bear with me. We're about to dig deep, okay? If you think things have been controversial or strongly worded so far, look at this. Still considering the story of Abraham, James concludes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whoa! <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold the boat. What does that mean? 
I'm going to spend a bit of time explaining this verse because if we don't fully understand what James is saying, it can be one of the most bothersome verses in the Bible. And if you know your Bibles, you know why this verse seems to be a problem. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And again, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So on the surface, we seem to have a contradiction. But is it? Is it a contradiction? Let's look at that. Some people feel that James is actually opposing Paul here, that they're opposing each other. He's arguing against Paul's theology as laid out in Romans and other places. But James, we know, is written much earlier than Paul's letters. This couldn't be a response to or against Paul's writings. Now, could it be a response to Paul's early teachings or beliefs forming in the early church? Some people will say, so I don't believe that. But it could very well be a response to people who either misunderstood or misapplied Paul's theology, a distorted view of Paul, so to speak. Many major scholars hold this view. One major thing to understand is that it is extremely likely that James is speaking about justification in a different sense than Paul. That's extremely important here. Paul, when he talks about being justified by faith apart from works, he's referring to the moment of salvation, when we first have faith. When God looks down from heaven and says, you are righteous in my sight because you are trusting in Jesus' blood and his righteousness to save you instead of your own. That's the moment of justification, the moment of salvation. James is referring to something different. James is referring to a justification before God that is yet to come in the future. This is very important. Why do I say that? If we go back to last week to see the context of this, in verse 12, what does James say? It says, So speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James, in context, is speaking about the judgment, the last day when we are before God's throne and he judges us. And he says that we are justified by our works on that day, along with our faith. And he says that our works done on earth will prove on that day that we have saving faith, that it was true faith, genuine faith. They don't do the initial saving like Paul says, but they will verify that our faith is saving faith. Do you see the difference, the two stages here? We still, on that day, we still will have to throw ourselves on God's mercy, trusting Jesus' righteousness and grace, because our good works aren't good enough. They never can be. The good works that we do have, though, will justify us in the sense that they will prove that we had true saving faith, that we had true justifying faith. Just like Abraham, who had faith first and then his works displayed his faith. Faith, I would say this, is the declaration of righteousness, and works is the demonstration of that righteousness. Another thing to consider, when we think about this theological issue, I think that we often slightly misunderstand Paul as well. 
See, Paul wasn't arguing against the same thing as James is here. Paul argues against works saving us apart from faith. James would never propose that. He would never say that. Paul, on the one hand, what you would say is faith versus works. Whereas James, like I said earlier, it's one type of faith versus another type of faith. Douglas Moo, a scholar whom I'll quote a couple times today, summarizes this by saying, James and Paul, when properly interpreted in their own context, are not opposed to one another on this point. They give the appearance of a conflict because they are writing from very different vantage points in order to combat very different problems. Okay. Paul, say this carefully, Paul was never against works accompanying faith. He was never against that. If we read carefully what Paul says, we see an actual pretty strong emphasis on works. That the saving faith of Paul always leads directly to doing good works. Every time you read about it. For example, in Romans, the passages that talk about being justified by faith alone are followed up by passages that talk about building up our character and being slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says the only thing that counts is faith working through love. And in Ephesians 2, one of the most famous passages, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But what, does anyone know how that passage continues? Yeah, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, some of you may still be confused and think, but aren't we saved by faith alone? Isn't that a major, important aspect of our faith? Here's the thing, and listen carefully. If I've lost you at some point, this sums everything up. Are we saved by faith alone? Yes. But what type of faith are we saved by? Are we saved by an active faith or a dead faith? You get it? We are saved through faith alone by God's grace. But that saving faith is an active, living, growing faith. If my wife told me that she loves me, but never did anything to show me that love, I wouldn't believe her. I'm going to give you my favorite quote on this topic, which says things very simply. The quote has been attributed to many different famous people, so I'm not actually sure who said it. But it says this, Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Get it? I think that sums things up quite nicely. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. After the whole... Hubbub that verse 24 creates. James returns to his case by layering more evidence, more proof, as if he needed more of it. He gives us another, one more illustration, then he concludes. In verse 25, he brings up the story of Rahab, much like he brought up the story of Abraham. 
Verse 25, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into a ton of depth on Rahab's story, but Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, who back in the time of Joshua and the conquest of Israel, she aided and abetted the Hebrew spies. And God saw that as an act of faith, a good work on her part. And James says that this action displayed her faith. Now, if I were picking examples of faith from the Old Testament, I really doubt I would have used Rahab. There's a lot of great examples I could have used. But James picks arguably on on the one side the most well-known and crucial character in the Old Testament in Abraham. And then he picks an obscure prostitute who wasn't even Hebrew. Why does he do this? Well, James most likely wanted simple variety in his illustrations in order to illustrate two very different perspectives of faith acting itself out. Douglas Moose says this wonderfully, I think. It says, So alongside the famous and celebrated ancestor of the Jewish people, a man, the friend of God, he places an obscure Gentile woman of low moral character. Thus, he implies that anyone is capable of acting on his or her faith, whether a patriarch or prostitute. Anyone's capable of it. Finally, James concludes this way, verse 26. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. We as humans have two parts to us. The body, the material, our flesh and blood, and what we call the spirit, the immaterial. The spiritual. The body is mortal while the spirit is immortal. And when we die, we believe that a spirit leaves the body. And that makes that body officially dead. After the spirit leaves the body, that body is worthless unless you're an organ donor. (laughs) James says that just like a spiritless body is dead, so a workless faith is dead. And with that, James puts a nail in the coffin. Pun fully intended. Today I've talked a lot about how faith needs to have action accompany, but we haven't talked much of what this looks like in our life. How should this impact our lives? For some of you, you've probably only figured out some things that God might be prompting you to do through this passage. Others of you might think, wow. That was a lot of heavy theology. Now what? What do I do with this? If we studied James and didn't talk about application, I think he'd roll over in his grave. (laughs) The last point on your notes is really a conclusion. We saw first that faith that is not accompanied by action is completely useless. So, true saving faith must be an active faith. We've already said this several times, and really it isn't a new point. It's more of a restatement or a rewording. But I believe that saying it this way illuminates the application for us. If faith without action is useless, then true faith that saves us must be active, must be full of loving action. 
He speaks of this true faith. We saw it a couple times back in verse 14, or not 14, 18, where he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the true faith. And in verse 22, when he spoke about Abraham, he said, You see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. That's the true faith. I'm going to repeat myself one more time because this is so important. James is comparing two types of faith, the dead, useless faith, and the active, saving faith. True faith will result in doing good deeds. Deeds of love, deeds of faith. Sometimes we get so caught up in the controversy, we forget to see what God is teaching us. We end up forgetting what James's whole point is. So I want you to to ignore the controversy for a minute and ask yourself, does your faith work? Does your faith work? Is your faith true, saving, active faith? Or do you have a dead faith? Jesus himself said, a tree is known by its fruit. How's your fruit look? Is it there? Here's the thing. I believe that this is not something that most of us have to worry about. I say that very carefully. Because I see many of you putting your faith into practice, doing good works. And to you, I tell you, keep up the good work. Don't worry about your faith if it's acting. But I don't want you to automatically assume that you're in that most of us. I want you, just because maybe you claim to be a Christian or that you've gone to church for years, I want you to take God's word and honestly examine yourself. Examine yourself in the mirror of God's word. For sure, this passage should for all of us be a renewed call to put our faith into practice. And that could look like anything from caring for the poor to mopping a floor. Loving one another with anything and everything we've got. But, true faith doesn't say that we must do good works. True faith, by nature, will lead to doing good works. It is not forced or coercive. It's impulsive, instinctive. And there's a huge difference between those two. It can be easy to misunderstand me today, thinking that I'm just telling you to do, do, do. Here's the thing. You can't add good works to your faith. It's not an addition problem. You can't add it to your faith. True faith instinctively brings forth good works. Some of you may wonder, well, am I really saved? I better go out and do a whole bunch of things to make sure I'm saved. No, 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 no. Examine your faith. And if it is real, true, genuine faith in Jesus, good works will become something that you don't have to do, but that you want to do, to show your love for him. But some of you may need to ask the question today. Do I have faith at all? Do I have true faith? Even if you've accepted Jesus into your heart before. 
Or, but that confession has never led to any change or action in your life. It's never led to loving other people, to generously giving of yourself. That would perhaps suggest that you don't have true faith in Jesus. Today, you may need to repent of your fake faith. I don't say that lightly. You may have even been baptized. You may be a member in our church, and you've never actually had that true living faith in Jesus. Maybe you thought, maybe you thought that going to church was a good work. So you've done that for years, and that's good enough. But practically, you've only looked out for yourself. You haven't taken steps to love other people, to love God. I believe that, again, it would point to a faith that's counterfeit. Maybe before today, you actually felt that doing good things would get you to heaven. But doing good works alone can never, ever save you. No matter how well-intentioned, how pious, or how good we think we are. Because our good can never outweigh our bad. We have sinned against God. Repeatedly. We have sinned terribly. Sin is really, it's cosmic treason against God. Today, if you have a fake faith, you have to put your faith in Jesus' righteousness, not your own. That Jesus would save you by his grace as you never could. You can't. Maybe you sit there today and claim something to the effect of, Well, I've got the grace of Jesus, and that's all I need. And I agree. Technically, that's all you need. But if you never do anything about that grace, I don't believe you. I don't believe your claim that you have that grace. See, the grace that Jesus displayed for us by coming and dying for us, paying for our sins, rising again to conquer death, freely pardoning us. That grace was intensely active. And that grace was never meant to buy laziness or apathy or comfort. That grace was intended to purchase for God a people wholly devoted to obey God's will. An active, redemptive, grace-giving, generous, and loving people. That's the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and we've looked into your word, some things could be confusing still. Some things could be convicting. But God, I pray that you would 
if through this we would see through all the clutter and we see who we are as sinners in need of your grace. That we need to come to you. That we need your forgiveness. We need your life. We need you to grant by your grace that incredible faith that instinctively acts itself out in love. Pray that you would do this for each one of us. Help us display the love and grace you've shown us in our lives to people around us. Pray this in Jesus' name.